This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. The startling honesty of Ecclesiastes I mean, has been so refreshing, so helpful. I mean, we were going through a major decision that, uh, you know, I mean, it's a big decision. We didn't know we had to make that decision. But just the wisdom of Ecclesiastes that your life is a vapor. It's just here today, gone tomorrow. has been so refreshing, so helpful in helping us to navigate and to make that decision. Now, since it's my first time studying Ecclesiastes, I've uh, depended on uh, quite a few books. And uh, one of the books that has been helpful is the one that uh, Pastor Andrew mentioned, uh, David Gibson's Living Life Backwards. And in fact, the outlines are taken from uh, his chapter 9. So I've uh, depended a lot on the five to six commentaries I've read. And they all say slightly different things because Ecclesiastes is not a, a simple, straightforward book. Okay, but let's see how we do. I want to begin by making us look at verse 13 to 18, where the teacher talks about this uh, city that was besieged and how a poor person, a poor but wise person, saved the city. Now, the interesting thing is there's actually a true story of something like this. Okay, so those of you who play board games, you may have come across this game called Carcassonne. Now, the real city of Carcassonne was besieged okay, for five years. And towards the end of that five years, the people in the city, they were running out of food. And so a wise person came and said, Okay, let's feed all our remaining grain to the last remaining surviving pig. So they did that. Okay, so the food, they fed the pig so the, the, the pig could be you know, bigger and plumber. And what they did with the pig once it you know, got plumber was they threw it over the, the walls and they said to the soldiers that were besieging them, Hey, you down there, it's been five years, I'm sure you're running out of food. Here, we've got so much here that, you know, here, have this, have this pork on us. And so the soldiers, they were like, what? Five years we've been besieging them, we've been out here in the cold, you know, going to field toilet and everything. And then they still have pork to throw at us. And so they got so discouraged, they packed up and they left. So it's actually a true story. But what the teacher is saying is that the poor person with such great wisdom that saved the city, in the end, he was not remembered. And then it says in uh, verses 17 and 18 that the wisdom is not heeded. Now I think the point that the teacher is trying to make here is the limitation of wisdom. Now the reason why I begin with uh, that portion is because I think 13 to 18 is the start of a new section. So as we go on into chapter 10, the teacher will uh, expound more on how wisdom is good, wisdom is better than folly, but there are limitations to wisdom. So it is limited, but it is definitely better to live wisely than foolishly. So I think 1 to 12 is a section on its own. And so what is the wisdom in 1 to 12? Uh, Yes, it is limited. It cannot give absolute meaning in life, but it is still better to live wisely than foolishly. So what is the wisdom that 1 to 12 offer to us? You can see in your uh, bulletin, 
1 to 6, the blanks there for you to fill is the one thing in life that is certain. So the first section, 1 to 6, the teacher is telling us about the one thing in life that is certain. Now, I know there are some of you who are here for the very first time. Okay, so, you know, there's Jason there, all the way from Melbourne, and then uh, my ex-student David from Hong Kong. Okay, so some of you may be here for the first time, or some of you may have drifted in and out of Ecclesiastes. Now, if there's a one chapter that you drop in on that is great, it would be this chapter. And the reason for that is because what I think is happening is that after eight chapters of argument, the teacher is summarizing. Okay, he's, as it were, stopping, allowing us to catch our breath. He's summarizing the main things he has observed and concluded before he moves on uh, to the last three chapters of the book. Okay, so uh, that's why we'll see many familiar themes here. And in 1 to 6, he's talking about the one thing in life that is certain. Verse 1, I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. Now this is a theme that we have seen. And uh, the poem in chapter 3 of a time for everything and how God has made everything beautiful in its time is the teacher's way of saying that God has ordained everything such that no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. God is the one who has ordained it and he has done so according to his timing, his purpose. Now verse 2 continues that, uh, all share a common destiny. Okay, what is this common destiny? What is this one thing that is certain? Now we will see again and again that whenever the teacher has an opportunity, he will go back and talk about death. Every opportunity he has, he will tell us about the certainty, the reality of death. And so, this is the common destiny that we all share. The righteous, the wicked, the good and the bad, clean and unclean, those who offer sacrifices, those who do not. I mean, he's just putting that contrast, right? Whether you live a good life, whether you're those who have helped grandmothers cross the road, or you're those who rob grandmothers, doesn't matter. We all share that common destiny. And then he says in verse 3 that this is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. There's this evil in this life that we live, that there is this same destiny that overtakes us all. Now this is another uh, common theme that we've seen throughout Ecclesiastes, that the teacher is actually reflecting with us, observing with us, helping us to understand that we live in a world that is post-Genesis 3. We live in a world uh, that is outside the Garden of Eden. He is describing for us life outside Eden. And so there is this evil, there is the reality of death. And so outside of Eden, post-Genesis 3, uh, verse 3 tells us the hearts of people are full of evil. And there's madness in their hearts while they live. And afterward, they join the dead. Right? This is an unfair world inhabited by sinful, evil people. 
and we all share this common destiny. We will die. Now he says in verse 4, anyone who is among the living has hope. So there's this one thing that is certain. But if you are living, then you have hope. And even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. Okay, I mean, what a striking way to put it, right? Uh, I mean, some of you may be dog lovers, and you may not agree that, you know, lion is better than uh, a dog. But in the culture of that time, I mean, like the great house of David, the insignia of King David's house is a lion. And the dog here that the teacher is talking about is not some, you know, poodle, you know, there's, you know the, the, the fur is all nicely done. He's talking about the, the scavengers, the wild dogs on the street. But compared to a dead lion, a live dog is better. Why? Because anyone who is among the living has hope. And what is this hope that the teacher is talking about? Well, I think verse 5 uh, will give us a clue. Because he says, verse 5, For the living know that they will die. So this knowledge that the living have, that they know they will die, actually gives them hope. Now what I think this hope is about is uh, the hope that they will know how to live in light of their certain death. Those who are still alive, have the hope of at least knowing, yes, that day will come when I will be six feet underground and at least I have the hope, the potential hope, that I can live life now with that in mind. Now that's been a theme that uh, the teacher has taught us about. Uh, you see in chapter 7, if you would like, you can flip back with me, chapter 7, he says the strangest things, right? How the day of death, verse 1, is better than the day of birth. Now, he's not talking about your death versus your day of birth, but he's talking about if you could go to a funeral, or at the same time, you've got an invitation to go to a birthday party. The teacher is saying, so much wiser to accept the invitation to go to the funeral. He says, verse 2, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. Why is it better? Because when you go to a funeral, at least you have the chance of being reminded that one day this will happen to you as well. And so you have the the opportunity to at least hear the message and be reminded, yes, death is certain. So how should I live in light of that certainty? So this is that hope. The living know that they will die, and so how should they live in light of that day? But compared to the living, the dead know nothing. Verse 5, they have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten. Right? Once you die, life moves on. Right? Chapter 1, verse 4 says, generations come, generations go. And the idea is that you know, they all come and go, but they make no difference. And the earth endures forever. Verse 6, their love, their hate, their jealousy. See, when we were alive, you know, we had these strong emotions of, of, of great love, great passion, great jealousy. But once we die, it is long vanished 
And never again will we have a part in anything that happens under the sun. So this is the one thing in life that is certain. We will die. Now, the, the second part in verses 11 to 12, uh, we will deal with first before we get to the, the middle portion. So in 11 to 12, the, the, the point is, you can fill up in your blanks, the many things in life that are uncertain. So we've got the one thing, they're certain, and that's the front. And then the back portion, the teacher now tells us the many things in life that are uncertain. So this is the, the opposite extreme. And it's so helpful the teacher is honestly, bluntly telling us this. Why? Because we like to live as if the one thing that is certain, our death, is not going to happen. And we like to imagine that the many things that are uncertain, we actually have control over, we, there's actually certainty about. But the teacher reminds us, no, we cannot control things, we do not know things. So verse 11, I've seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift, or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favor to the learned. Now, sometimes it does, right, that the fastest runner wins. But then again, there are those times when the one who you know, is the number one seed gets a cram or you know, gets heat stroke and then some, you know, some other runner gets the podium and wins the goal. Sometimes, which country is it? Germany won't win, get kicked out in the first round. Sometimes that happens. Time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, No one knows when their hour will come. You see, we live as if we have control and that the many things in life are actually certain. So we plan and we want to achieve this, we want to accumulate more, we have these projects that we want to do. But what guarantee is there that tomorrow we will be under a bus or having a a medical report that we have three months left to live. There's no guarantee. So as fish are caught in a crow net, or birds are taken in a snare. So you know like that, that, that fish is just swimming along, the bird flying along happily. But before they know it, they're trapped. Because time and chance happen to us all. People are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. So a few weeks ago, I was planning, making my preparations to preach three talks at youth camp. And then lo and behold, I spent four days in hospital. Didn't expect that. And then the Jia Jing and Nick Tai, you know, planning for, for youth camp. Okay, you know, they, they're looking forward to it. Or we're just going to play the games and we're going to have fun with the youth. And time and chance happens to them. End up, they have to preach. They have to, you know, prepare the sermon, use my notes and preach. See, we cannot know the future. We are not in control. Now, this is uh, echoed by James in our responsive reading. At the end of chapter 4, we saw James saying, verse 13, 
Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, make money. You have these plans, you have these aspirations and dreams, but verse 14, why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. So those of you who are you know, new to Ecclesiastes, you know, this is your first time, the word that is repeated by the teacher again and again, it translated in most translations, is the word meaningless. Okay, but he doesn't mean that there is no meaning. Rather, that word means mist, vapor. It's just here and then gone and it's, it's, it's enigmatic. There's something strange, there's something fleeting about it. Okay, so that's the, the meaning of that word. Now, what is the teacher trying to do by you know, framing the middle portion, you know, the first section and the last section, talking about the one thing in life that is certain and the many things that are uncertain? The teacher is using these two truths as wrecking balls. You know, wrecking balls, you know, demolishes the building. Because the teacher is trying to demolish that illusion we have that we are in control. It's trying to blast to smithereens that, that attitude, the lie that we believe that we can be in control. That we can achieve this, we can have that that we can control our destinies. Now, a helpful uh, point that I I heard in approaching the book of Ecclesiastes is to think, uh, is to understand that the teacher is trying to overturn the lie of the serpent in Genesis 3. So remember in Genesis 3, the serpent says to the woman, if you eat this fruit, then you can be like God. And the woman is tempted and she eats it and Adam eats it as well. And the whole human race is fallen. Now the thing to realize is that lie of the devil, the serpent. He's still making that lie. He's still trying to deceive us with that lie. And you and I, we are still tempted to believe that lie. If not, why is it that when my plans don't go according to you know, my way, I feel so discouraged. I feel as if the universe is spinning out of control because I have believed a lie that I am in the center of the universe. To a certain degree, I believe the lie that I can be like God. And so the brutal honesty of Ecclesiastes, these wrecking balls of his truth, his observations, his reflections, is to blast that, demolish that illusion. You are far far, far from being like God. You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. So with these two wrecking balls doing its work on our lives, we must instead recognize that the life I have given by God, the life I have is a gift from His hand. So remember in the Chapter 9, verse 4, anyone who is among the living has hope that in light of that certain reality of our death, we might have the hope that we can live life wisely today. So what is the wise way to live today? 
Well, the teacher tells us in the middle section. The simple things, the simple things in life that are wise. Now notice that verse 7 begins with the word go. Go. It's a command. Right? There's, there's, there's an urgency to what the teacher is saying here. Go. Eat your food with gladness. Drink your wine with a joyful heart. For God has already approved what you do. Now this is again uh, something we've seen often. You know, the, the food, the drink God has given you, enjoy. Right? Now there are wrong ways to take this teaching. And one of the wrong ways to take this teaching is, yes, the, the things that God has given to us is to make an idol out of it. You know, we can be so smitten, we can so chase after these uh, things that God has given to our, to our hands that we, we make a God out of it. We make a, a good thing into a God thing. And that is the surest way not to be able to enjoy it. God has given us the gift of food, of drink, of sex. And the way that we turn it into something nasty is when we make it into a God thing, when we worship it. So the teacher obviously is not telling us you know, to chase after these things and to make an idol out of it. So that's the wrong way to take it. Another wrong way to take it is that, yes, this food and drink and happiness that God owes it to me, that I should have a certain level of food quality. I should have a certain level of drink quality. I should have a certain level of standard of living. And then chase after these things, and when we don't get it, be so upset with God, thinking that He owes us this certain standard of living. So the teacher is not saying these things. That would be the wrong way to take these things. Rather, as we've seen, the teacher is telling us what God has given into our hands. You know, eat your food with gladness. It means if you find yourself, you know, like me on a Sunday, sitting down with friends and eating my almond nuts, it's not two-star Michelin restaurant, but I can eat the almond nuts with gladness because they're packed full of goodness and it's so good for you. You know, so, uh, you know, thank God that he's made amazing things like Almond nuts, right? Um, so it, it's, it's not, yes, I must have a certain type of food. I must have a certain you know, level of uh, quality. Then I will be glad. But what God has put in our hands, we can be glad. We can, be, you know, we can enjoy it with a joyful heart. Why? For God has already approved what you do. I mean, what a strange way to put it. He has already approved what you do. So obviously this is not sinful eating, sinful drinking, right? sinful idolatry of these things that God has given. But this is a theme that we've seen all the way at the beginning uh, in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes. Uh, so important that I want to remind us of this teaching. Because he says in chapter 2 verse 20, 24, A person can do nothing, Better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toy. This too I see is from the hand of God. For without Him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases Him, 
God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. I'll stop there. But you see, this is a, this is a teaching, right? That God is the one who gives us the ability. God is the one who enables us to enjoy what He has given us. So when we go and eat and drink with joy and gladness, God has already approved because God is the one who has given us that ability to enjoy. Now he continues, verse 8, Always be clothed in white, always anoint your head with oil. Okay, so you wearing white? Okay, very good, okay? And then especially Richmond, you know, wow, his head is shiny. Okay, now the teaching here is best understood when we compare how in Bible times, if you are mourning, if you are grieving, you will put on sackcloth and ashes. So this is the opposite. It's joy, it's happiness, it's a celebration. So you wear white and you put on oil. Verse 9, enjoy life with your wife, whom you love all the days of this meaningless life. Okay, Meaningless means fleeting. It's a mist. So enjoy life with your wife whom you love. Now, so there's a few married people here and let's dwell on this. Okay, let's chew on this wisdom. The teacher says, go. See, in light of the certainty of your death, in light of the many things you cannot control, wisdom is to enjoy life with your wife, with your spouse. Because your spouse, your partner, is a gift that God has given to you. Now some of us, we have uh, always made the mistake of taking our wives for granted, taking our husbands for granted. And so today, you know, coming to church, you know, sometimes Sunday mornings can be a bit hectic. You know, one child is still in bed, another child still doing homework, another child in the toilet for so long, you know. And it can be very hectic, especially, 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 when you're preaching this morning. So especially hectic. But I made sure that when we got everyone into the car, I turned to my wife, gave her a peck on the cheek. Huh? Because you must enjoy life with your wife. Okay? Now sometimes we are too busy and we just, you know, pursue life. And if you're too busy to enjoy life with your wife, with your spouse, then you are too busy. You are too busy. Now, sometimes the other mistake that we make is that we uh, take, take the wife for granted. But the other mistake that we make is that we make use of our spouse. So we want to get higher, make progress in our career. And so the spouse is there to keep the house in check, to make sure the children are raised and you know, they don't become thieves and, and robbers, this sort of thing. And so the wife is there just to keep the home to do the homework with the children, to make sure you know, that the laundry is clean. And we make use of our spouse that way. If you don't enjoy the gift God has given you and you make use of it instead, then you will lose what God has given. You will not be able to enjoy this gift that God has given. So enjoy, cherish don't take for granted. Don't use each other to gain something, something else. 
For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead where you are going, there is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. See, notice it says, whatever your hand finds to do. It does not say, whatever your heart desires to do. So my heart may desire that I want to be you know, a best-selling Christian book writer that gets invited to conferences all over the world to speak. That may be what my heart desires. Okay, actually, it's not. Okay, I mean, it's, it's not, really, really. Honestly, honestly, it's not. Uh, you know, or your heart may desire that you, know, you, you want to be you know, running this company or to be a millionaire by age 30. I mean, your heart may want this. Your heart may want that, okay, your children by this age, they are you know, settled and married and you know, they are self-sufficient. Your heart may desire these things. But notice that's not what the teacher says. The teacher says, whatever your hand finds to do, whatever God has placed in your life to do, whatever God has placed in your hand to do, it may not be what you have dreamed, but do it with all your might. And so the simple things, the teacher reminds us, eating, drinking, I think it's just a, a representative list. Maybe it's helpful if we expand that list. The things that God puts in our hands to do, the simple things in life that he gives us to enjoy. Eat, drink with gladness, listen to music you enjoy, learn a new recipe, go for a run, play with your kids, read the Bible leisurely, watch the sunset with your wife, sleep in, visit friends, Visit the sick, learn a new language, go for a run, pray together, laugh together, laugh until there's tears in your eyes. Such a great gift from God, isn't it? That, that, we can, that there are times when we can laugh until there's tears. Go to the park, call your grandmother. Talk about Christ to strangers. Plant a church. Feed the hungry. Reconcile with someone. See, all these things that God has given us, do with all our might. Enjoy what God has given us to do. Because we know that death is certain. And that there are so many things in life that are uncertain. And so what God has given in our hands to do, do it with all our might with thankfulness, knowing that He is the one who gives us the ability to enjoy. Now many people have noticed the, the things that the teacher talks about in verses 7 to 10 are wedding imagery. Eating, drinking, you know, being dressed in white, you know, having uh, the oil in your head, you know, the husband and the wife. It comes from a wedding image. And ever since the book of Ecclesiastes has been written, God has revealed. And he's revealed in the rest of the books he's given us that if you belong to Christ, 
then there is one more thing that is certain apart from death. You have a wedding to attend. Now, if you ask uh, the average Christian, what are you looking forward to in heaven? Or, you know, they may say, well, I look forward to see my loved ones. Or I look forward, you know, this, this, this pain, you know, my, my, my arthritis will be gone forever. Or I look forward to, you know, or, you know bodies being fit. And I look forward to... And then maybe at the end of that list, they may say, oh yeah, and then there's a wedding. Now, what would you think of a person who is about to get married to you know, the person he loves, but leading up to that wedding, he's just consumed with other things, his mind is not even on it. In fact, he's, he's plain forgotten most of the time that there's a wedding, that his wedding is coming up. Now, there is, apart from death, one more thing that is certain. That if you belong to Christ, you have a wedding to attend. Your wedding. And God has used this image of, of marriage, of wedding, to depict the closeness, the intimacy that He has purposed with His people. There is that in store. The God who has given us life now, the God who has given us things in our hands to do. Yes, there is pain, yes, there is toy, but this God has also planned and purpose that in our future there will be this wedding, this climax of a relationship of great intimacy and closeness that only a marriage on this earth can do justice to depict. So how will you live? in light of your impending death, and beyond that, what God has planned for you, that you will be His people, that you will dwell with Him, that everything will be made new. You will be made new. You will be joined to Him with great closeness and intimacy, that you will live with Him unshielded from His glory and His love and His majesty. May God help us to live wisely now. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.